Full Service Radio. Welcome to Window Seat, recorded live from the Line Hotel. And I'm Morgan Washington, D.C., broadcast on Full Service Radio. I am your host, Chris Price. I have with me Mr. Francis and Victor Kidd. Yeah, yeah, what's going on, everyone? Let's not forget Jack. Oh, we got Jack back there. Yeah, yeah, I'm back here. (laughs) And we also want to say it's presented by Amila, Adams Morgan Youth Leadership Academy. Yo, Chris, you did a good job on that, man. He been, know, he's been practicing. <laughs> no, no you, you, it's funny because I feel like I just ran a flight of stairs before I started speaking. I don't know what happened where I was. <laughs> Nerves. I was, I was, no, I was like catching my breath. <laughs> Mr. Kid, What's going on? What's going on? First and foremost, um, thank you for being here. Um, you were just really, you seemed like you wanted to be here. So yeah, yeah. yeah. That's always awesome. And um, we appreciate you coming through because uh, last week he almost came through. And yeah, pitch headed for us. Got, yeah, got hemmed up with the work thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was last minute though, so we understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely wanted to be there though. Can you give us a rundown of your resume right now? What are you doing? Okay. Um, well, um, I'm Victor Kidd. I'm from uh, the Washington D.C. area in neighboring District H, Prince George's County, Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the son of uh, a D.C. legend, a guy named Max Kidd, who. Uh, was very instrumental in Go-Go, okay. um, the creation of Go-Go, production of Go-Go, and uh, modern-day Go-Go's. Um, I that, wanted to ask you about your father. Yeah, that, that wouldn't have happened. Um, what we see today wouldn't happen without Max Kidd. Mm-hmm. Um, but me, I played football at Archbishop Carroll. I played uh, football at Virginia State University. I came home shortly after that and got my master's in clinical social work uh, from Howard University. Mm-hmm. And I was doing the social work thing and uh, therapist uh, with adjudicated youth and um, individuals returning home from incarceration. And then I switched gears, and now I am a Ph.D. student, um, the first African-American Ph.D. student in the Sport and Entertainment Management Program at the University of South Carolina. So that's what I'm doing. Uh, Currently, I'm working as a Minority Awards Fellow at the African-American Museum, so you sound serious. Where's your, where's your tie? <laughs> where's your wingtip? Uh, yeah, I try, hard to, I try to do all this without a suit on or anything like that. <laughs> so, I want to start at the beginning. Um, your father, I know, um, your father passed, and yeah. there's a purpose to me wanting to talk about him just for a moment. Yeah. Um, how have you dealt with that? What's the healthy way in your mind? Oh, that man. shakes everybody's world up, right? Man, it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, you talk about, you know, helping people deal with challenges, right? As right. a therapist. And you talk about one of the first things you learn uh, is, you know, the stages of grief and what that looks like. And uh, you would think because you've been trained in this particular area that you'd be able to handle it. And uh, no, it's actually been really tough. You know, I actually talk about it more because it's more so of a therapeutic uh, right. coping skill for me to kind of continue to help me deal with the passing of my dad. We weren't extremely close, but I made a decision <clears throat> maybe about six years ago because we didn't talk much mm-hmm. that I would at least go by and see him. 
um, and check on him, and I'm glad I did that. That probably would have ate me up even more knowing he would have passed and I never would have talked to him or whatever the case may be. Um, but, yeah, so that's 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 been tough. I guess the healthiest way you could really handle that, man, is talking about it. You know, it's really whether that's professionally, whether that's journaling, whether that's with your friends having some, you know, safe and uh, sober space to kind of talk. Um, you know, I mean, grief and liquor sometimes is a perfect <laughs> merge. But right. uh, I think that um, having somewhere to really voice and really face some of those challenges and just kind of express it. I think that's the healthiest way to do it. I, I sought out counseling. Um, but there's other methods of counseling. You know, what we see in those kids do right on the corner, right, skateboarding and stuff like that. That's, that's they coping or, you know, that's their form of grief counseling as well. So. You think, but people don't know that. And just to, to talk about the kids a little bit, they when they see kids doing things, they usually uh, put whatever opinions or perceptions right. they have on it. Right. I wouldn't have thought that they. I just thought they were having a good time. Right. So why why did you why do you think that that's them? I mean, you know, present. we kind of talked about it yesterday. You know, briefly when we was chatting. Uh, you know, it's just really tough, man. The challenges of being a, a youth in today's ages is extremely tough, and sometimes a, the, the the best thing at a moment is to just run and. I've always thought about this process of running and what that looks like. It's almost like Forrest Gump where he's just running and running. These kids are really running and running and trying to find the escape from whatever problems that they have. It's, you know, not having, I don't know your living situation growing up, how you was raised, but not having a healthy home situation is more common than what we would like to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's Across the board. <laughs> across right. the board, right, right. Having somewhere where you could come in, you learn, uh, have culture capital, social capital, healthy relationship with your mom, healthy relationship with your dad. Um, that's very few and far between for a lot of our youth in the city. Um, and it shows me how much, you know, I tell my mom all the time, you know, I love you and thank you for uh, what you were able to provide for me. But a lot of these things, man, you see kids doing, they don't have to necessarily be doing, you know, drugs or, or alcohol or something like that. But a lot of these things are coping mechanisms. A lot of these things are outlets for a lot of ways for me, which was football, outlets for their pain, you know. And, yeah. I, 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 you know, we all have pain, how we recognize it as pain, trauma, whatever the case may be. We all deal with it in some f- form or fashion. So You have those moments where your mind is not currently <coughs> engaged in whatever is killing you. Right, 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 right. So you're free for it, and, and you right, need right, that to, right. to provide some space for it. Right. I, um, I have a friend in my family. Uh, she lost her son who's roughly the same age as me and i wouldn't have even asked that question if it wasn't for her because she told me she loves when people ask about michael really she needs to talk about it but everyone feels so awkward that it's almost like she can't express herself and her world has changed forever she explained to me her world would never be the same it just it always has a pain with it because she's a mother that lost her son Mm. So when she sees me, she's reminded by our son. And I know now that it's okay to be like, yeah, you know, anything. I remember when me and Mike went to the pool or this, that, and the third. And it just allows her to just pour it out. So, yeah, that's where that question came from. I I think the culture, though, kind of cements that approach. Um, We wanted, you know, cultures when someone passes, we kind of, it's not really like celebratory. And we hide it. Right, and so if you go and see other cultures, particularly over in Africa, um, 
in different places that I've been. And in New Orleans, they do that too. Right, and they have like they have that. <clears throat> um, it's almost like Mexico in a lot of ways. Right. How they celebrate the dead. Yeah, thing. they they have a parade. They walk through the street. They right. get dressed up. It's a celebration. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, man. It's interesting, and and that's what we you know need is a celebra- celebratory sense, not necessarily action, but this sense of not. I'm not mourning someone's death, but I'm celebrating the yeah. time that they had here. Right, right. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the way she's talking about it is the way she's celebrating her son's life. She's she wants to talk about it, you know. So that's cool that she has the strength to do that. A lot of people don't have the strength to do that. I I wouldn't say she has the strength to do that. Oh, honestly, okay. it, it it bugs her. Right, right. But she needs it at the same right. time. Right, right, right. I would think that talking about it would be a bad thing because. It's reminding you of this. You, so you have to relive this painful experience. And so for me, for a long time, different experiences that I had uh, growing up, I would I held them in. I didn't talk about them a lot. That's what I feel like our culture. I don't know if every culture does that, but we don't talk about shit. Nah. <laughs> Nothing that we supposed to be talking about. Right. <laughs> that we need to talk about. Right. I, son, like my father doesn't even really say I love you. Like it's just like certain but, and that's something that goes back to culture, goes back to time. How old is your father? Shit, I couldn't tell you, bro. I, I can make something up. Make Probably it up, like 65. Right. Okay, 65. so my mom's about, <laughs> my mom's about 62, right. 63. 63, wow. Dang. And uh, she's the same way. Like, I didn't see my mom cry until I was maybe 18 or 19. Like, I, you, you were hard-pressed to see my mom, like, somebody had to pass some type me. of emotion or yeah. something like that. Um, and something that we've kind of gotten better with, but well, really me more so, um, is just telling her I love you and stuff like that, or you know I care about you things like right. that. Because that's not stuff she does. But if you survey everybody from that era that was born from 1955 to 1960, mm-hmm. they probably wasn't really raised with that type. Those those, those are tough times where it's kind of like being, you know, happy go lucky and being very affectionate could be perceived as being weak during those times. You yeah. know. And those times probably didn't allow them to have that level of affection. So it's it's it's, it's interesting how we look at all that stuff. Our history impacts our present. And I, I think it was. Uh, I think I might be wrong. I think it was Michael Eric Dyson. He was talking about Adrian Peterson when he got caught whipping his child, and and he was saying that a lot of our parents are solely trying to keep us out of jail, right? And the thought crossed my mind if you were to survey everyone who was in prison and you'd ask them how many of them got whoopings, probably, you probably get a lot of people raising their hand. Yeah. And if you go to Howard then you or Harvard, right? And you ask them how many of them got whoopings, probably, you know what I mean? I don't know. I'm, I suspect 15%. Right. So I, I don't know. I mean, it kind of feels like we're misguided. But I don't, I don't, so I, so there's other forms of abuse besides being, uh, physically abused and i think that if you go to harvard they may not say they got physically abused but i'm sure that they have some other things going on with them that's why i don't like for me it's just um you would yes a lot of people in jail suffered a lot of negative things i think a lot of people in the world suffer a lot of negative things and they just deal with it differently right so i don't i don't for me looking at somebody at harvard i don't want to look at them and say they had it easier necessarily i think their role was probably easier because the opportunities um given to them from their background and different things like that i just think that i don't know i think abuse happens more often in a lot of different cultures um and to a lot of different people than we give credit to and i think a lot of people hide it a lot better because they present themselves in a way so we'll say a person in harvard 
didn't experience the things that I experienced. So they didn't have it as difficult as I did because they're in Harvard. And I just think that causes us to look at people and things differently. Well, there's there's a lot of things that go into the point I was trying to make because I don't think other cultures necessarily have the same relationship we have with the law. But I think if you ask any parent where they hope that their child ends up, if it's Harvard or prison, they would choose Harvard. And yet we're whipping our kids and that's not what's happening to people that are going to Harvard. I, I mean, it kind of goes back to what, uh, I always butcher his first name, Coates. Tahanasi. Yeah, you too. It kind of goes back to what <laughs> his book was talking about, was talking about. Wait, wait, just quick. Tahanasi Coates has reached his limit for being mentioned on this podcast. Yeah, we, <laughs> I think we straight talked up. about, yeah, we talked he, about I, I think he's been in three consecutive Chris podcasts. Chris loves this guy. No, 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 no. I love Oprah. She can keep going, but Tahanasi Coates, time's up, brother. <laughs> you don't like him? No, no, he's dope. He's oh, dope. Okay, but okay. Vic, we've talked about him three straight. <laughs> but let's go ahead. Get your. Point. I mean, his premise about the body, right? And so, why well, I kind of mentioned this because I study physical culture and sport, mm-hmm. the movement of bodies, uh, the movement of the body, and what the body represents within sport. Okay. Um, and he talks about you know this book coming out of his being scared for his son. That he, you know, he talks about this guy, Prince Jones, who was a good friend of his, who mm-hmm. was killed by the police. But that he mentions it, and I can't remember right off my brain. It's been some time since I read the book. But he mentions these instances where, you know, these whippings and things like that are not necessarily um, to, to be, you know, abusive, but to, it's out of fear. It's right. like, you know, I got to whip you or the police are going to do the whipping, you know, type of mentality. And I think. You might not see that a lot nowadays, but I think that's that was that's a real thing. I, I'm type of person where I see black children with lack of discipline. Mm-hmm. I get scared for children who black children who haven't received uh, some type of discipline because what you then you signify to the child that whatever you do, you can you can just do whatever the hell you want to do. Okay, but when they leave this line hotel, mm-hmm. society is not going to let them do whatever it is that they want to do right like you can't go out here and act a fool they killing black boys with sense so you can't go out here and act a fool and think it's just gonna be okay or you can't go out here and think you're just gonna break the law and think it's gonna be okay so i think we send a uh 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 the wrong message too i can't talk about anybody else's children white hispanic age i don't know about their culture but what i know as far as black youth are concerned the lack of discipline makes them even more susceptible to what we're seeing going on in the black bodies in society today. So, If you're just joining us, you're listening to the window seat. Um, we have Dr. I'm going to say Dr. <laughs> Victor Kidd with us today. And I think this is uh, real interesting for you, Amari, because Amari was... Um, well, didn't you mentor children? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to... I used to uh, so, yeah, so we, I want to get into, uh, into just, you know, what's happening in the household... What's happening in the mind of these children? Because both of y'all have worked in troubling homes. Yeah. And just see what's... And I, I, and I have kids. I have teenage boys. Right. So, um, I don't know. Like, so Chris asked me recently uh-huh. if I uh, would whoop my kids. And I, and I have a, a daughter who's three. And I said, no, I wouldn't. He was like, oh, you got a daughter. So he said, did you... Did you uh, <laughs> You know, did you whip your sons? I said, yeah, I have. 
And he said, oh, you got a daughter now, so you're not going to be kids. I was like, no, I think in hindsight, I would have handled a lot of those situations differently. I, I think that um, I think that the fear that you're talking about is real. I think that a lot of times, at least for me, when I think back on the times, most of the times that I physically disciplined my kids, um, it wasn't. Honestly, I think it was more about what they did in the way I received what they did. Right. So I felt I, maybe I took it personal. Maybe I took, even if they understood what I believe I taught them to behave a certain way and they didn't behave that way. And I felt like I had done enough talking. I had done enough punishing. I had So the next step was uh, a physical response, right? So for me, it wasn't necessarily um, to discipline them, to keep them from, uh, you know, something happening to them out in the street. It was more to get them to behave in a way that I wanted them to behave. And I think that even in the, in the families that I've worked with, where I know they physically discipline their kids, it seemed like it was more an expression of what the parent was feeling that they, or dealing with that they took out on their kids. Right. And for them, they didn't know another way to discipline their kids. So a lot of times, and I see, I've seen it with kids that are three, four, five years old Mm -hmm. and they may be um, walking too slow or they may be, you know, not responding if a parent tells them to do so they're, they're being kids right. so for me i understand the idea and the the um, point that uh mr coach was trying to make in his book but i think from my experience and what i've seen and my personal experience being physically disciplined what I, from what i've seen um it doesn't it doesn't match for me right not saying that it's not true. I understand that it's true, and I understand for a lot well, of people. I, I, think, I mean, I think as far as discipline, but I, I don't want to say like, you know, like taking your belt off and all that. Yeah, right, right, right. But um, the system of reprimand is what I'm also getting at. Like, the, like having a constitution of reprimand for your actions. Right. We, we see. I've seen that multiple times with families that I work with that that's non-existent, and it's not necessarily whipping somebody. And and, and what you talk, kind of talk about though is the change in times and the change in generations, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of times we were physically reprimanded because that's all our parents that's, as, really knew, right? Yeah. So they were physically reprimanded. Yeah. But now in the age where we can uh, be in a space where we're more educated, where we're more exposed to alternative ways to discipline, mm-hmm. it's now for us to kind of you know, change that narrative and use other instruments of discipline with our children. now. My father had five girls before me. <laughs> Chances are I'm going to have girls when I get started. <laughs> Could I sit and whip my daughter? I, I'm not sure. But do I have other ways that I could reprimand? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I reprimand my niece all the time, mm-hmm. right? And so um, so I definitely think what you're saying is, is, is important. That kind of, And you're doing that with what you're talking about. is changing the narrative of what discipline looks like. Right. But the lack of any type of reprimand or the lack of any type of understanding of what's right and mm-hmm. what's wrong, that has been totally misconstrued in black families today. Um, now, there's a whole host of different things you can ask me, well, why is that? Mm-hmm. But um, that's the, the presence right now uh, that I kind of feel from working with young people, working with families and, and things of that, that nature. Even with, and it's not even in your mo- most, you know, low socioeconomic, it's across all, you know, families, you know what I'm saying? I, I feel like you always have to be careful with the picture you paint of black people because I feel like it's always I was thinking the same wrong, thing. Wrong, right? Well, not, but, I, but, but, but I don't, that is broad. 
Right, right, right. But right. but we focus on the negative side. Right. Um, my experience was nothing like that, but my father was in the military, right? So I, I can't speak to anyone else's experience. Um, but I just want to say we got to be careful. Also, um, you told me something that kind of stuck with me for some time now, Mr. Francis. What? You were saying that when you were dealing with or mentoring kids mm-hmm. that a lot of times you would walk in a household and the child would have the same issue that the parent has. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hard to tell them to respect time, be on time to class when you, the parent always misses the meeting with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what Vic was saying. The uh, right and wrong is misconstrued. So a child will be disciplined for something that uh, might not necessarily be wrong, but it, it the parent viewed it as wrong. And then what most people would say is wrong the parent allows right so you would say uh a kid may not be disciplined for uh cursing at home or uh they may not respect the curfew so it may just be you know they get whatever you know i'm making this up and then when they go out into the community like we were talking about riding on the train and kids are cursing in public they're saying using certain language in front of people that you know and it's just who are you? What, what are you? Why is this okay? Like, right. why don't you have uh, uh, in your head, in your a mind, switch to say, say like, "Yo, I need to this, pipe it I down. need to pipe it down." Exactly. Like, like it was certain. It's certain. Like, like coming up, it was certain ways you act around. Right. Right. And what you see today, I don't care if they rich or poor, what they look like. Right. What you see today is you see kids, and it may be due to social media or whatever the case may be. But you see youth across the board; they don't even have a wherewithal for. That type of decision making It's kind of like Whatever the hell goes Goes You know what I'm saying And That's the age we living in You know what I'm saying I mean Where we have our youth As young as one Hugging on a pad iPad all day And mm-hmm. It's 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 what we You know It's the times we live in You know But it's not It's not bad times It's not It's not I don't want to Like you said I don't want to harbor And make it seem like It's all negative But Alright so we gonna get into Some positive in a little bit later but I want to take a quick break. <laughs> but we're going to keep it. <laughs> You're listening to Window Seat. Thank you. The music you're listening to here is by Rossier, local producer from Baltimore. He actually won the BB1 Beat tournament recently, so we'll be listening to him all week. This one's called Zen. Find him on soundcloud.com slash Razier. That's R-A-S-I-I-R. We'll be right back on Window Seat. Keep it locked.
Welcome back to Windows Seat. We're live here with Dr. Vic Kidd, Mari Francis, and myself. Chris Price, man, say your name. That's right. <laughs> Mr. Kidd, we were talking offline um, about what you're doing now. Um, and we want to get into that just a little bit. The relations, uh, relationship with sports and the, I don't know. Yeah, I, I what, what is it, it you doing? It much better where do you, where do you go? Where are you, where are you uh, doing your PhD program? So I'm in uh, Columbia, South Carolina at the University of South Carolina. So um, Gamecocks is the mascot. So you ever see Spurrier, right? Spurrier, yeah. Thank you for making this (laughs) easy for us. So, yeah, man. So, I I get it now. I got down there uh, fall of 2016. Uh, It was really different socially. Um, Man, it was a culture shock coming from Virginia State and Howard and going there. Mm -hmm. Um, But while there, I um, been able to kind of establish myself as a scholar, as a researcher. Um, as a professor as well, I teach for the university mm-hmm. um, as an adjunct professor as well. Um, and so what I focus on there is my main issues are what I actually like research, um, are sport retirement issues and mental health um, and athletes and how athletes throughout their career, but also when they retire, mm-hmm. what challenges do they face? What goes into those challenges manifesting or developing? And uh, down the road, what I want to be kind of instrumental on is providing clinical services to athletes, but also helping with program development and resource development uh, for different organizations who are tasked with dealing with issues with athletes, former athletes or current athletes, you know, uh, kind of faced with the ultimate transition that they all have to make. So, um, so yeah, that's what I focus on, man, by, by, by nature. Um, a lot of my stuff falls in between race and social issues and sports. Okay. Um, and, and so that's been really good, you know. Um, Our business is booming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's been really good just for, from a dialogue standpoint. And also going to these different conferences, you have a lot of people talking about activism within sports spaces and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, man, so that's what I do this year. I teach uh, two classes. I teach one of the classes at the university uh, which is a college athlete experience class. So this is typically for um, athletes who are just getting to the university. And I run through, run them through a lot of topics um, or challenges they may face or things they want to kind of be um, aware of as they make their transition to college. Wait, um, I, I, I just, this question just jumped out at me. Um, what was the movie with Ray Allen? He got game. He got game. Is that realistic? Is that you, wait, have you seen the movie? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like how the, the, the colleges are trying to bribe them with the girls? I mean, I, I, I don't know because I'm not really in that space. Mm-hmm. And you were, though. Were you recruited? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was recruited. I wasn't. I was I was good, but I wasn't as good as I thought I was because I'm, I'm sitting here with y'all. Okay. So, Vic uh, looked like he could lift both <laughs> me and Amari with one arm. I, I, just, went, I just went. I wasn't fast enough. Um, that was the, probably the biggest thing, but... I, I'm not going to speak and say that that's happening. Um, but what I do think needs to change um, is players just need to be paid. I mean, uh, I had the kid, Brian Bowen, in my class that was at the center of the whole Louisville uh-huh. scandal. He ended up transferring to South Carolina. And uh, really good dude. Uh, really liked him, really enjoyed him, having him in my class. Smart guy. 
Um, and when it came out, you know, we never really talked about it. But when it came out, you know, the whole Louisville thing and then him and his father and what his father might have played, what role he may have played in the scandal, um, it came out that the father wanted $100,000 for his signature for commitment. Uh-huh. And if you look at a kid, if he stays in school for four years, it's $25,000 a year. That's not even a fraction of what his image and likeness is going to make the university, right? So, like, if they signed him for a hundred thousand dollars, that's like a that's a good ass deal, right? Because you 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 have you do it, have you back channel? Even if he comes and plays for two years, fifty thousand dollars a year, it, he's it's worth it. It's it's it's, it's worth it. So at the very it. least, because kids don't have a choice, right? They have to. Because I could say, yeah, I'll play for your school, but I don't want the scholarship. Just give me the money. I mean, but the kid, but not only that, but the kid, pay, pay him. Well, they if, can't say that. If you're not going to pay them, let them benefit from their image and likeness, right? Their image right. and likeness. Let them go sign autographs. Let them go uh, uh, use, you know, like you had the, the black kid who was the kicker at Colorado, I think, or mm-hmm. one of the universities, or UCF, and the NCAA said since he was monetizing his position as a as an NCAA football player, he either had to stop his YouTube channel, he had a very popular YouTube channel, or be deemed ineligible from the team. He ultimately picked being, you know, picking his YouTube channel over being on the football team. But, excuse me, um, I think that's going to have to really change, man. It's, it's just this... Because if they're going to do it anyway, if you're going to have people doing all these things through back door and all that, pay them. <laughs> yeah, but how likely is it to change? And it and is that something that you intend to uh, fight for once you graduate? Um, how likely is it to change in the in the foreseeable future? I don't be- think it's going to change. I feel like I, eventually it will. I, it's going to take a long time. Yeah, but you say in the foreseeable, foreseeable yeah, yeah, future. Yeah. I don't really think. I mean, you got a little wiggle room this year where they got rid of um, giving players, college athletes, more rights per se. Like you don't have to do, uh, you don't have to sit out or something like that if you transfer. But this is the thing: the conference at the conference level could then invoke a rule where you still do have to transfer. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like, are you really giving the athletes more mobility? more rights than what they have. Um, I think at some point, that this, was gonna, this is what's going to be the final straw. I saw a report on uh, Bleacher Report maybe a couple of days ago where the NBA is considering getting rid of the one and done. Right. Mm-hmm. College basketball better figure something out if they want to put a decent product on the floor. Because if that's the case, every kid – Every top fifty kid of every recruiting class is going to, is going to declare. <laughs> so it's not uh, to me. Your boy Lonzo Ball, his father. To me, there's so many sweet spots that we don't necessarily exploit. You, he might not be doing it the right way and trying to start his own. It was a, a JBA or something like that. Yeah, he. I, I, I'm I'm down with Lonzo. I mean, I'm down with uh, Lavar Ball. I, I am too. I think he's doing the right thing. And. It's radical, but every change that has happened, significant change is some radical shit that didn't happen. You know what I'm saying? And so I think, like you're saying, the different opportunities that players, will, particularly with basketball, will mm-hmm. have could change the landscape. You know, you got 
where you could go overseas. You've seen that here and there, but you've seen guys go overseas. You've seen guys go um, number uh, five star recruit this year. Decided that he was going to forego. He set out and then go to uh, the G League. You had the other kid, Mitchell Robinson, who was at Western Kentucky, was going to go to another university and then just didn't do anything. Isn't there a kid that, that worked out? Um, he went to some, some place in Florida and was training the whole season. Mitchell Robinson. Okay, yeah, okay, okay. yeah, yeah, the center. Right. Um, so it's so many different. If business is what you're talking about, if sport business is what you're talking about, NCAA basketball, men's basketball, they got to really come and be like, look, how do we fix this? Because – we're not watching a bunch of Grayson Allen's running up and down the court. So are you gonna? Is that what you're gonna pursue once you graduate? Um, not my advisor is real heavy. I mean, my my advisor is, is a guy named Dr. Richard Southall. Is um done everything, man. He's done everything for athlete rights. He's done everything for exploitation of athletes. Um, he's even uh, uh, what's that when you go to the court and you um, down here on the hill, um witness testimony mm-hmm. um, and testified about the exploitation of athletes uh, within college. Um, that's not something that's on my heart just yet. Um, it's, all, it's definitely eating at me. I'm reading a lot more literature about the system of the NCAA and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, but it hasn't been on my heart like it is on his heart. Now, I'm sure at some point when he like hangs his shoes up, I may have to take the baton from him, but um, as last time we spoke, he's still gunning it too. So, what is on your heart? What is, what is um, I think I think my thing is really, man. I really just want to get in these guys' heads and really trying to get them to understand what life actually looks like after sport. And the reason why I think it's important is a lot of people. There's no knock on them, but a lot of people I've met that have been in charge of this type of responsibility, mm-hmm. they're typically not trained helping professionals it's like i play ball too so i know um or which could be extremely which could keep if keep individuals in that role if the person that you're dealing with that's trying to get you out of that role was just in the same role or dealing with the same thing it could be negative as too. you know too much of something right um and so that's that's what's on my heart to really work with athletes um, got a couple other things as far as uh, still doing therapy, but if I could merge my ther- therapy practice with working with athletes from a therapeutic standpoint and also being a uh, transition consultant uh, for different wealth management groups, mm-hmm. being able to you know be contracted with wealth management groups to help them with their programming for their athletes as they matriculate through their um, through their career. So research and being a professor. I, I like it. I think I'm falling back in love with it for a moment. I was like, man, I'm done with this. Once I finish with the PhD, I'm out. Because I think as in that space, you get a lot of time to kind of think, write, read, and kind of, it's not, when you're a professor, it's not like waking up at nine and going to sleep at five. It's like, it's weird. It's like, you come in Monday, Tuesday, teaching class. Mm-hmm. Then you like in a hole writing somewhere, or you could be in the living room, grease board writing notes, and then getting to your computer and typing up what it is that you're writing or researching. And so, I think that 
that that's become more, even more apparent to me that that's something that I want to keep uh, in my life from a professional standpoint. Uh, is being a, a tenure professor and research at a university, but also, like I said, being someone who well, who's, who's going to be the advocate then? Who's going to fight for the for the cause for the people that need uh, it's a lot support? It's, Especially, you said you were studying the Kaepernick. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a lot of people out there. It's a lot of people out there doing that. There's a lot of people, and that's kind of why I'm not doing it. It's like, you know, when you go to these these areas of education or areas of uh, uh, spaces where people are intellectuals, you know, you every, half of the room right. is dealing with race, Kaepernick, LGBT issues, and sport. I mm-hmm. mean, what do you – yeah, I'm into – Black empowerment in sport. Oh, with black activism in sport. Mm-hmm. Oh, with you LGBT issues in sport. Mm-hmm. With you, so it's kind of like they got it on lock. They got it, you know. They got it on lock. My view on this is my view on that is this, particularly with the NFL. The NFL is never going to like die as long as it's poor, uneducated black boys ripping and running, looking for a way out of their circumstance. Right. So it's never. It's, it has an ever-ending. Systematic cultural farm system that will never go away. I, I maybe I'm a dreamer because I, I think I think the NFL just needs the right cosign. Like to me, if people embrace their power, LeBron James right now could kill college basketball. He could say, "I'm starting my own league. We gonna pay the players this." He could do what uh, big baller brand, and it would actually go. So if Puffy wants to do it, if the right person wants to do it, I think the athletes just got to make a jump. And it's going to happen in, in my eyes in the collective bargaining. I mean, but, but what I'm, what I'm kind of talking to, and you can't really compare both leagues because they're drastically different, different. even down to the CBA to access to other options. Mm-hmm. This whole notion of, you know, you hear you talk to some people, I ain't watching football this year. That's, that's, I see a lot of these dudes on campus. They watching football. No, this is they. This you know how you went to the military, right? I went and got my masters. This is they way out. Like this is how they get out. Like you, you hear about it. You see it on like he got game depictions like that. Mm-hmm. But when you really see it, like I had a kid down there tell me, man, I'm from the mud, literally. Like I leave here, I ain't going back home. Like it's either I'm going. To the league, I'm going somewhere else, but I can't go back home. Like these these dudes are coming from. If you just look at the in the in the southeastern conference in the SEC, if you mm-hmm. pull all the schools, so just Tennessee, Alabama, uh, USC, University of South Carolina, for some other USC people get on me for saying that. <laughs> um, Florida, all these Kentucky, all these universities, mm-hmm. and where these guys are coming from. I mean, I think I saw a report. I, I know I saw a report. I can't remember what year it was. I don't know if it was in 2015. But the five states with the most with the most talented football recruits or with the highest number of football recruits came from the top seven lowest states of educational or socioeconomic attainment. Mm. Right. Right. So like this what you see out here what, what you see out here, these dudes on U Street asking for a dollar, asking for these other parts of the country, DC has some of the best resources for a lot of people. These other parts of the country, not even interested in having resources, not even interested in having uh, 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 returning citizen offices in the D.C. government to help individuals come home from jail, from jail to get situated with different. Like these other parts of the country, they don't 
this is not even on a budget. Help who? Oh, no, nah, we're not interested in it. Like, th- th- these things these things aren't being addressed, and these guys come from those areas. These pockets of Alabama, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, Texas. Texas. Yeah. And they don't, they don't explain that when they're talking about why they went broke after two or three years. Right, and because, it, I mean, just as, as a black man, I've, I've been feeling it with this Ph.D. thing, just kind of realizing what this means. Like, this, the, the Ph.D., I had a guy tell me at the Starbucks in Disher Heights, he saw me, he said, man, I'm so proud of you. He said, man, yeah, I, your mother told me what you was doing. He said, man, I'm so proud of you. You getting this Ph.D. is like me getting a Ph.D. Mm-hmm. He said, man, it's like the whole Disher Heights getting a Ph.D. Which you get. That's, that's, right. how, that, that's, that's how serious this is. Like, it ain't even about me. It's like, it's like, dude, like, your mother told me what happened. Uh, uh, your mother told me you was down to getting a PhD. Man, I'm so excited for it. Like, these dudes, that's, just imagine a gazillion people in a small little town saying, you got to get to the league. If you make it, we all make it. We all make it. Even if I don't get no money from the ordeal, the fact that I can say so-and-so from Saluda, South Carolina, made it to the NFL, that socially, that is that is a lot of pressure to put on 16, 17, 18-year-old kid yeah. to go can, and perform. Can we back up for just a moment? Do you, whenever you have a child, are you letting them play football? Yeah, I mean, man, football, man, shoot. Football afforded me so much stuff. You know what I'm saying? Um, it, 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 I'm not going to be the one to be like, oh, my kid can't play it. Nah. Football, man, t- taught me a lot about being a man, stuff that my dad wasn't really around. I had other men figures, male figures in my life, but football told me a lot about what life – football is like a reflection of life. Like, you got first down, you may make a little progress. Second down, your ass may get whipped, may lose some, some yards. Third down, you got to figure it out. Fourth down, if you ain't figure it out, it's, sometimes a life is just, I'm winging it. This shit is a Hail Mary. I'm just mm-hmm. tossing it up, right? And, and so I, I am forever grateful – for the opportunities. Playing football got me from Sula High School to Archbishop Curl. Some people may say, oh, that ain't a crazy trade-off, but it was better than <laughs> going to Sula. When I was at Sula, the principal up and left. When I was at Sula, the school was rioting for about five days straight. I mean, it was to a point I had never fought that much in my life. But I feel it was, like, it I feel was like so, everybody <laughs> has horror stories in PG County. It, I don't it's, know why. It's, it's so, it's, it's, I'm, I'm not trying to trash PG County, but I'm just saying at that time, I mean, man, it would get so. It was so many people that went to Suitland. You couldn't get from. You got in a fight just bumping into people because you couldn't get from one end of the hallway to the other hallway. And so, uh, for me, going from there, going to Curl, and getting a getting a scholarship that I got to go to Curl. Curl sent me to Africa. My my senior. Joburg is that when you went to Johannesburg, Cape Town, Durban? They sent me to Africa, right? Where my boys, granted, they won a couple state championships, and that hurt. But I was getting exposure to stuff that I wasn't receiving. And then football didn't, didn't allow me to go into Virginia State, which, shout out to Virginia State University, man, it was probably the most formative years of my life, the most impactful years of my life on who I am as a man. Um, and so I, I definitely would let them play football. Now, where we make the mistake is we let them play football and that's it. We, we stop the academic enrichment. We stop enriching them with other non-athletic social activities. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying? This, what's dangerous is this specialization in sport at a young age where you got five, six, seven, year, eight-year-olds receiving individualized training, 
okay. parents looking at the activity. It's not for fun or not for social enrichment, but looking at it as a way for college to be paid. You're not worried about injury or the, the uh, physical injury, the brain injuries? or. I mean, whenever you play on anything, you, you risk being injured. You know, you risk, you know, you might not be uh, uh, paralyzed, but significant knee injuries change a lot about you. They change a lot about as a man. When you when you talk about masculinity, you lose a part of yourself. You hurt your back, and you say, "Damn man, I had a rough day getting out of bed." Part of you is like, "Damn, I can." You try to that masculine testosterone boost is the thing that's telling you I can muscle through this, right? And so, any any injury, significant injury, is going to change you. Regardless. But we so we're hearing stories about people killing themselves, or killing other people, domestic I mean, pe- violence, pe- drug pe- addiction. People, people doing that without CTE. People doing that without, you know, head trauma. People. I mean, we, the thing about it is, is having the resources put in place to combat those different issues, right? So you have different things out there. The game is changing a lot. You know, I mean, by time twenty twenty hit, it's going to be flag football anyway. And, but having the different things, teaching kids at a young age how to tackle, how to how to use their neck, how to use their head when performing the tackle, uh, proper protocol with concussions and things like. Because this is the thing, concussions it's still a stigma around concussions. So me and you play the same position. We both play wide receiver. I gotta get it, and I know you on my heels. I've been having shitty practices. I know you on my heels. You on the second team. And I, my my bell is ringing. Yeah, I'm not telling nobody. Put you in. I got to get out for a concussion. I'm gonna just let it rock. So it's a lot about changing the stigma around it as well from coaches, mm. from everybody. Because if you if you also in a lot of ways identify with having a concussion or experience some 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 type of head trauma, you could be perceived as weak. Oh, he ain't want to play. And that's and this is someone in the locker room telling you. Someone has been in the locker room telling you. Know, so I think that the biggest issue is just just the resources. It's not the not playing football. You can get head trauma in lacrosse, head trauma in soccer, head trauma in a lot of things. You're seeing a lot of more a lot more people in the last year or so going to the concussion protocol and basketball. Mm-hmm. So. I feel like you're risking it whenever you go out there. But I think the big issue with football is the resources, the programming from the youth sport level on up, and how we change the the connotation about what concussion and head trauma looks like. Vic, um, we're up on time. We got two minutes left, and I just want you to answer this last question for me. If you had to say something to the senior in high school going to college, the college athlete, what would you tell them? Oh man! Learn finance. Take a <laughs> finance class, a basic finance class. Learn about economics, and read as many black authors as you can find. And don't let nobody tell you you ain't got enough time to do it. That's what I would tell them. He said black. Why, why, why black? Black, black, yeah. black authors, man. All right, read as many black authors as you yeah. can find. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like you to could think- branch out after that, but to get to know where you come from. What happened before you and who you are, you can't do anything else before you know that. You can't really t- appreciate anything else before you know that. And that's something that I'm learning with reading. Thank you, Thank Dr. You. Kidd, for joining us today. Yes. I'm going to throw that doctor in there because it's important. <laughs> Mr. Francis and Jack, uh, this is Window Seat. 
and we appreciate you listening. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>